So uh, let's uh, take our Bibles and turn in them to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, we're going to look at just a handful of verses. Now last week I had, I'm just going to set you up for disappointment with regard to Last week, I had uh, encouraged you that there would be some things that I was going to lay into this week, uh, but the things that I thought I was going to lay into this week are a little further on into the chapter, so it's like, you're going to get to it, God willing, next week. And so it's like one of those things where it's kind of like, you know, they leave you on a cliffhanger, and then like, man, I can't wait, and then the, the next week, there's like a different program on, but it's like a good program, but it's not the one you wanted. Uh, that's kind of maybe a little bit where we're at today with this. But I, I trust you'll appreciate God's word nonetheless. The title of the message is Awake to Righteousness. So let's take our hearts to the Lord. God, we just want to say thank you for gathering us here. And Lord, what a sweet, wonderful, intimate time of worship, Lord, just to kind of scale things down and just be uh, us and you. And uh, Lord, I, I pray, God, that now that as we look into your word, Lord, we've uh, allowed our hearts to worship in that sense. And now in this sense, as we just kind of bathe in the waters of your word, I pray that you'd speak to us, Lord, that you'd move and minister, Father. And as was uh, already stated once today, Lord, we just pray uh, for the salvation of any who may not know you, Lord, and the further strengthening and sanctification of those of us who do. God, that we be not hearers only of your word, but doers, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. What do we say? Amen. You know, as Christians, everything we believe hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, you start tugging on that string that doubts and or denies the resurrection and everything unravels. If there's no resurrection, then all the apostles are liars. Jesus himself is a false prophet at best. He's a, a deceiver. The word of God is untrue. It's untrustworthy. It's full of uh, failed promises and false hopes because they all have prophesied, promised, bore witness to the resurrection when in reality there is no resurrection if Jesus did not rise from the dead. But the resurrection is proof positive that Jesus' sacrifice for sin was received of the Father. You see, if, if Jesus didn't rise, then we have to presume that his payment was rejected. And if his payment was rejected, then not only are all of the apostles liars, then also our faith is empty and we're still in our sins. And everyone who we know who has placed their faith in Christ and has since died has perished. And though it's true, as we discussed last week, that becoming a Christian can solve many of life's problems, it's also accurate to say that it can expose us to a whole host of new problems. Uh, the person who paints to you the picture of, you know, just come to Jesus and you'll have a problem-free, primrose, privileged existence has done you a great disservice. Jesus never painted that picture for anyone. He said things like, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Uh, why? Why do they go in by that gate? He said, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. He said, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
And so Jesus calls us to cease placing the priority on the things of this life or of this world. Our hope isn't in this world. We're called to maintain the eternal perspective. So Paul concludes with regard to all of that, that if in this life our only hope is in Christ and Christ isn't risen, then as believers our existence is just a pitiable joke. And he says, but enough with that nonsense, Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. And as our time came to a close uh, last week, Paul was systematically, if you remember right, demonstrating how that the resurrection of Jesus Christ necessarily set in motion a chain of events that would culminate in the final destruction of death and an eternal sinless state to the glory of God. Amen? And so let's look together now as we follow up on that flow in verse 29 of chapter 15. He says, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in this manner of men I have fought with the beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead don't rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And so Paul continues to pound into his readers the absolute necessity and dogmatic inflexibility, unyielding truth of the reality of the resurrection. He says, why would some partake of this particular practice? Why would we subject ourselves to uh, relentless persecution if the truth is the dead don't rise? There's no resurrection. If this life is all we got, then why not? party till you puke, rinse, and repeat. You know, that's, that's essentially uh, what he's saying. And we touched on this last week. But let's look at this, you guys, because I understand that lots of people have questions. Listen, listen, lots of people have questions about this, and it's, it's only appropriate that you would because the truth is, you went in on a little secret, no one really has an answer for it. Okay. However, there are some biblical insights that we do have uh, that uh, we can use to address it. Now, we wish that Paul would have spent a little bit of time establishing understanding uh, for us with regard to this practice that he just acknowledges and then he moves on from. But the truth of the matter is, is that the practice, okay, in the mind of the apostle, the practice is peripheral especially since his readers already knew, obviously, what he was referring to. The principle that the practice points to is what he's establishing. Are you following me with that? Okay. He says it in verse 29. We'll just go ahead and, 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 and get the elephant out of the bag. Or the uh, cat, the elephant in the room, right? Uh, otherwise, come on, somebody, stay with me. Otherwise, we'll leave the cat in the bag. We'll deal with the elephant in the room. How's that? <laughs> what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? 
And we read that and we just kind of go, Paul, what in the world are you talking about with regard to this being baptized for the dead? And, and I'm just going to be completely honest with you. I have no idea. Uh, I mean, uh, and now listen, I'm also going to tell you this. Don't let anyone else tell you that they know what he's talking about. Okay, because he doesn't tell you what he's talking about. And uh, there are literally, you start doing your research on this, ladies and gentlemen, you are going to find dozens, <clears throat> perhaps hundreds, okay, of attempts that people have made over the years to bring some kind of understanding to this text. And the truth is, you will find something lacking in every one of them. Here's why. They're all speculative, okay? No one knows for certain. Now, Paul's point, we know for sure. But regarding this practice, no one, I mean, listen, now the plain reading would seem to indicate that there were some people who were being baptized on behalf of others who had died. I mean, that seems like the plain reading of it. The question that confronts us is, why? Why would anyone do that? And you should know that this is the one verse that the Mormon church uh, developed an entire doctrine around. And this is why, if you know uh, very, you know, any Mormons very well, uh, you, you will begin to understand why it is that uh, genealogy is so important to them. Um, they will search their entire family tree and be baptized by proxy, okay? That is, on behalf of relatives who either they, they don't know if they were maybe Mormon or maybe they hadn't been baptized, they're uncertain of their faith, you know, that perhaps they may be saved even though they've already died. Well, what that tells you is that they believe in baptismal regeneration, which isn't altogether an uncommon uh, position that people take, which essentially, if you'll just allow me to just say it, you know, kind of real just succinctly, uh, it teaches salvation through the act of baptism ultimately, and that God has provided a way. This is the understanding of the Mormon philosophy, that God has provided a way in his mercy via baptism by proxy for everyone to be saved and receive what is, you know, kind of air quotes here, uh, the blessing of baptism, to receive the blessing of baptism uh, even after they've died. So if you're Mormon, you know, you understand that it's incredibly important to you uh, to find out who's in your family tree, man. I mean, so that you can be baptized on behalf of your entire lineage as far back as you can find. Few things you need to know about that and that we do well to um, discuss while we're here. First of all, you should know that there is not so much as one single reference to this practice anywhere in your Bible outside of this one verse, okay? Now, there is a, a rule, an order uh, that has been established that we have when it comes to establishing what we call sound doctrine, Okay, or an appropriate teaching for the church. And the first rule is that if you're going to establish a sound doctrine, an appropriate practice for the church, you know, you want to find Jesus teaching it. 
okay? Now, nowhere in any gospel is there even one reference that Jesus made to being baptized on behalf of the dead that they might be saved. Now, guys, ladies, gentlemen, family, friends, think this through, okay? If you're the son of God and you were sent to bring salvation to the world. Now, remember, you remember what Jesus said. He said, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be what? Might be saved. He said, the son of man has come to, number one, seek. Number two, what? Save that which was lost. This was, for lack of, you know, just a quick succinct, it was his mission statement. To seek, to save that which was lost. Now, that being the case, don't you think that if it were possible to see ancestors saved who had perhaps otherwise, I mean, at least as far as you know, perhaps they had perished, meaning you didn't know them. Uh, at the very least, you weren't certain of their faith. Don't you think that if you could stand in the gap on their behalf and be baptized for them, that they might transition from this place of alienation from God to reconciliation with God, that Jesus, Jenny, isn't it reasonable to think that Jesus would have at least mentioned it? Oh, yeah. I mean... Once, Terry, would you agree with me that he, maybe once he would say something about it? And yet Jesus never, never so much as even alluded to this, much less taught it as a valid practice, okay? Number two, we want to see it practiced in the book of Acts. We want to see the early church taking part. And we have no record anywhere in the book of Acts that the early church practiced baptism by proxy or on behalf of the dead. And then thirdly, you want to see it reinforced throughout your New Testament in the, the epistles. Now, we see Paul, he mentions it here. He certainly doesn't approve of it, much less reinforce it. He just acknowledges it in order to serve his point, uh, which we'll make mention of in a moment. So, for instance, what would be a... Uh, guys, we have one in front of us today, don't we? Uh, uh, a a uh, appropriate, sound, healthy doctrine uh, the, of the, in the Scripture. In other words, communion, right? We're going to have communion today. Jesus taught it. He even demonstrated. He went through it with his disciples. And we see it happen in the book of Acts. We see it reinforced and taught throughout the epistles. This is an appropriate practice for the church today. It's a solid biblical doctrine, an appropriate practice, okay? But the truth is, you guys, outside of the fact that the Bible doesn't anywhere teach baptismal regeneration, what it teaches is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done, not anything we do, right? Uh, but the truth is, is that the scripture teaches that once we die, our eternal destiny, if you will, is sealed. Okay? There's no do-over. There's no, can I reconsider now? There's no opportunity uh, to change your mind. The Bible says, is it appointed for men to die once? But after this, what happens? The judgment. Now, if you're in Christ, somebody give God praise here. <laughs> if you're in Christ, he bore God's judgment on your behalf. 
If you're not, you're on your own. And this is why, like Paul said, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you, be reconciled to God. Right? Because what is your life? Think about it, guys. I mean, I, 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 um, you know, a good buddy of mine died just last week, a pastor up in Kansas City. Um, but um, every time, I mean, it's just very, I shouldn't say every time, but I'm going to say the, the vast majority of time that I will officiate a funeral. You, you know, you know the, the, the first line that I, I lead with or that I step out and share with people? What is your life? That's what James, James asked that question. What is your life? Guys, it's, it's even a vapor that appears for a little moment and then vanishes away. You're not guaranteed another minute, much less time to grow old and make a decision later. And as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, therefore, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, we plead with men, we implore men. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this is why the Bible says that today, it doesn't say, well, think about it, mull it over if you want to, you know, maybe make a decision at some point. The Bible never says that. It says today, if you will hear his voice. Don't harden your heart. Don't go, well, maybe later. Man, today is the day of salvation. Open your heart. Don't flirt or skate on the edge of trusting that you'll have another chance, another day. You may. You may not. Now, it's also very possible, family, that what Paul is referring to with this practice of um, being baptized on, on behalf of the dead had absolutely nothing to do with the custom of the Corinthian Christians. It may very well have been a pagan practice that he's just pointing out. I mean, I want you to notice the reference to it is not comparative. It's, it's contrasting. He says, what will they do? Did you see that? It's kind of a key word says, what will they do? Why then are they baptized for the dead? He never even alludes to it as being something that he does or that we do as believers. Um, he doesn't say, why then do we take the time to be baptized uh, for the dead? He makes the distinction. It's something they do, not something we do, right? But why they do it, whoever they were, okay, why they do it, uh, it it's, it's because they, he says, even they recognize, know that this life is not the end. Family, the Bible teaches, I'm going to give you the edge on someone, anyone, okay? You start talking to someone about the Lord, there's something that you can know going into it. Okay, you have the one up on them. Number one, because you've been where they are. They haven't been where you are, so you kind of have that edge. But number two, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11. Do you know that the Bible teaches that God has put eternity in the heart of every man? You know what that means? That means that mankind intrinsically, innately knows that this life is not all that there is. Okay, now, 
they, they may try to convince themselves of that lie. They may stand up on their soapbox and take their stand on that lie in order to maybe help them feel better about or justify some sort of sin in their life or whatever the case may be. But deep down, guys, we know, we know this can't be all there is. And that's why, you know, man has these questions that plague them when they lay down at night. You know, why am I here? What is the purpose of, of life? And all of these questions that they ask, it's because that eternal issue of this can't be it. There's got to be more. Now, I'm not saying that they always articulate it in a succinct kind of articulate, you know, or whatever uh, kind of fashion, but somehow, somewhere, they know there's more than this. And so, you know, Paul could simply be saying, look, even, even pagans... Uh, Believe there's more than this life. What does that say about you who are purporting, you know, there's no resurrection? And so he's not endorsing this. He's simply pointing out the rationale that some have in observing it. They realize that there's more. Guys, it points to resurrection, baptism. Guys, what is baptism? It's identification, isn't it? It's identification with death and resurrection. We identify with the death of Jesus as we go down into the water. We identify with his resurrection, resurrection life, the newness of life coming up out of the water that we've been raised again into the newness of life. It points to old things pass away. All things become new. What's the point of baptism at all if everything is over at the end of this life? How does it hold any significance whatsoever? Do you understand? Verse 30, he says, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. Okay, listen, when Paul says, I die daily, uh, let me, uh, tell you what he's not saying, okay? He's not saying every day I wake up and, and die to self, I, I make a conscientious decision to crucify my flesh, uh, to deny myself, and take up my cross and follow Jesus, okay? Now, certainly Paul did those things, as we should do those things, we should on the daily, right? Romans chapter 6 and verse 11, reckon ourselves uh, indeed dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But that's not what Paul's saying. When he says, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? He's telling you what he means. He's like, you know, you've got them over there being baptized on behalf of the dead because they believe there's more than this life. And we're over here literally laying our lives on the line on the daily. Why would we do this? Why risk the end of our lives in this world if this life is all there is? Okay? When Paul says, I die daily... He's saying that he is in constant peril for his life. Okay, uh, 
like, uh, like as he quotes the prophet in the book of Romans, for your sake, we are slaughtered like sheep all day long. You know what I'm talking about? That's a rough, rough kind of quote there, but I trust you are recalling that scripture. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, you know, David is there. He's talking to Jonathan, his, his, his best friend. And he's trying to explain to Jonathan that Jonathan's dad, Saul, that Saul is trying to, his dad wants to kill, not Jonathan, but wants to kill David. So he's like, he's like, I'm telling you, man. And, and, and so he says, listen, truly as the Lord lives and your soul lives, this is David talking to Jonathan. He says, there is a step, just but a step between me and death. Your dad, he wants to kill me. My life is on the line every day. And that's the gist of what Paul is saying here. Ladies and gentlemen, we've drawn attention to it many times over the years. Paul was the kind of guy who was so on fire for Jesus Christ, who was so radical for Jesus Christ, that if he came into your town, more, the, the odds are more than likely it was going to end in one of two ways. There was either going to be a revival or there was going to be a riot. Okay, one of the two was going to happen, and it was not uncommon at all that it was the riot. Okay, uh, people were always trying to kill him. As you read through the book of Acts, you get to chapter 23, you discover more than 40 men who took a vow that they wouldn't eat anything, they wouldn't drink anything until they had killed Paul. Now, you get the news, you get that news. I mean, you know, about lunch 30, you're looking over your shoulder. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you're, you're, it's like, what do you do? Okay, uh, I trust most of those guys broke their vow because they, you know, I mean, maybe the next day or the day after. Um, but back in chapter 4 of this very letter, he said that even as he was writing, he was hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. Good old Pastor Paul, man. What would it be like to be in? Yeah, let's go to Paul's church, right? And this, this guy who's on the corner all gnarled up and beaten and raggedy and like he's hungry and thirsty and he's dirty and people are, you know, uh, you know kicking rocks at him or whatever the case. They're running him out of town. This is your pastor. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he speaks of being beaten multiple times with rods, receiving 39 stripes from the Jews five times, right? I mean... He speaks of being robbed and left cold and naked. He speaks of sleeplessness and weariness and toil. Now, you and me, we like our creature comforts. Paul wasn't about that life. Guys, he lived a life so committed to Christ. This is the attention. And he's not necessarily saying, I'm so committed to Christ. The, the, but what, he's, what we're seeing is that Paul lived a life so committed to Christ and, and, and so committed to propelling the message of the gospel that people could look at him and say, there is no way he would live like this if this, is all, if this life was all that, that there was. You see what I'm saying? There's no way this guy's going to be doing these things if, the, if it all ends here. In verse 32, he says, I have fought with the beasts at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is where he was writing this letter from uh, to them. Now, the book of Acts doesn't hold any record of, of a literal occasion whereby Paul was thrown into an arena. Uh, it's either unrecorded or honestly, more likely, the truth is that literally that did not happen because as a Roman citizen, 
He would not have been subject to that. He's speaking of the radical, violent persecution that he faced while he was at Ephesus, and we do have record of that for which eventually he would be forced to flee the city because his life was in jeopardy. But his point is plain enough. People are trying to end my life on the regular. Why would I even flirt with that? If there were no resurrection, if there were nothing beyond this life. And guys, really, you could apply this to all the apostles. I mean, couldn't you? Think of, think of the manner not only in which they lived, but in which they were willing to die. I mean, why? Why would you do that if it were all a ruse, if it were all a scam? I mean, there they are. Say they all sat down. You know, the Lord had, had, had proclaimed. The Lord had prophesied, you know, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll, uh, I'll raise it up. He had said on another occasion, even as, you know, get, they said, show us a sign. Of course, he said a wicked and, you know, perverse generation seeks a sign. Nonetheless, here's the sign you're going to get. Even as Jonah the prophet was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the implication was that even as that fish couldn't hold Jonah down, but regurgitated him, so to speak. Even so, death would not hold Jesus down, but he would come back from uh, the, the heart of the earth. He would come back to life. He would resurface, if you will. But here the apostles are. It's been three days, and Jesus doesn't, doesn't rise. And so, you know, uh, they're all sitting around. They're contemplating it. They're thinking about it. I mean, uh, and so they figure out a way to sneakily dispose of the body, right? Uh, Despite the fact that the the Roman soldiers were guarding the tomb specifically for three days because that was the day that he had prophesied and promised and all of that. But they they carefully, uh, you know, craft this story to cover the lie that Jesus put forth, that he would rise from the dead. And, And there they were. And, of course, you know, maybe they're each taking turns and they're walking around and they, they reassemble in the upper room and they're, they're talking about, and here comes John. He's like, okay, let's say this. And then Peter's like, no, that'll never work because of this and that. And then Thomas is like, well, I doubt that'll work, you know, and uh, come on, someone. It was the Thomas, the doubt. Okay, so there we go. You're with me. And, uh, and then, of course, you know, maybe, uh, you, know, uh, some, you know, Matthew stands up and they're, and they're shooting holes in each other's story and they're working out the kinks and this and that until they get this whole thing. They thought of every angle that could possibly be questioned could possibly be challenged and they're all singing the same tune and they go that's it we're going to run with it now they all know they're spreading a lie i mean put yourself in their position and it all seems like fun and games at first doesn't it i mean you're getting famous you're building a movement people are selling what they own and kind of putting it in a communal pot and everything is you know all in the name of this lie that you're perpetuating i mean man you've got it made few years goes by and more than a movement it starts causing like a commotion it starts uh, it starts getting out of hand because people are committed to your story and and uh, they won't say that that caesar is lord and so it starts setting off alerts at the highest levels of government and penalties start arising if you're part of this movement but you you're at the top so you hang on right it's it's still benefiting you but one day they find you And by this point, the penalty they propose isn't a fine. It's progressed past a beating. Uh, They're going to kill you. Your life is going to end 
today, okay? And not in a humane, uh, relatively painless fashion. No, you're going to be crucified upside down, and you're going to be left to hang there and suffer until you die. You're going to be tied to a stake and burned alive. You're going to be boiled in oil. You're going to be run through with a spear. You're going to be dragged behind a horse through the city streets until you're dead. Honestly now, all you have to do is say, okay, okay, we made it up. I mean, we, we made it up. We made a little money. You know, we got positions of power and influence. We're milking it for all it's worth. But it's a lie. It's a lie. Jesus never rose from the dead. You say that, you're a free man. No harm, no foul. Are you, think about it now, willing to die for a lie? much less die in a horrific, otherwise unbearable fashion. Now, people have died for a lie, but they believe that lie was the truth. Okay? I'm talking about you're the father of the lie. You made this whole thing up. And you know it's not real. Guys, I don't know anyone who would die for something they didn't even believe in much less that they know to be untrue. Be honest with yourself. The Bible says skin for skin, yeah, all that a man has will he give for his life. Hey, man, that's why when the gun comes up, you're like, here's my wallet, here's my phone. Well, you know, take what you want. None of it's, you know, I want to live. We have this innate desire. We want to live. Yet every one of these guys, minus John, he was the one that they boiled in oil, but the tough old bird didn't die. So they exiled him to Patmos, and we're grateful that God wasn't finished with him because we got the book of Revelation through that. But every one of them would be put to death in some horrific fashion because they preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hey, Paul says... If the dead don't rise, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That is, live your best life now. Party, puke, make money, engage in sexual conquest, you know, indulge yourself to the extreme every day, rinse and repeat, because when your life is over, there's no judgment, it's just over. But Christ is risen. There is a resurrection. And family, that should motivate us to endure the difficulties and struggles of this life. Set our hearts on eternity and live for the glory of God and share the gospel of Jesus Christ because eternity is for real. And everyone, listen, everyone, you walk around in the mall, you're looking at all the people passing by, you're at the gas station, you're watching people drive by, you're at a restaurant, all these people are around you, you're shopping. You know, there you are, you're at the gym, whatever the case may be, and every single soul that you see will abide forever in heaven or in hell. And that should motivate us to get the message out. Okay? Now, 
Look at verse 33. He says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Now, it could be that you're thinking, okay, I get the concept, but why did he say that here? It almost seems kind of like he's talking about resurrection, all this stuff, and then he, and, you know, and, and the necessity and the inflexible, unyielding reality. And then he says, and don't be deceived, uh, you know, bad company corrupts good morals or evil company corrupts, you know, good habits, however your Bible reads it. But guys, I want you to think it through. Where were all these concepts, all these strange ideas about the resurrection and perhaps baptism for the dead and all these other problems that the apostle was trying to correct as he was writing this letter? Where do all these things come from? Where are all these ideas that they're kind of uh, germinating and they're meditating and they're giving consideration to? Where are they coming from? They didn't come from Paul. They weren't coming from other right-on believers. They were obviously allowing people who were unhealthy for them spiritually into their, let's say, inner circle, their influential numbers. Do you see what I'm saying? Paul is at doing the math. He's adding it up. He's connecting the dots for the Christians of Corinth. You have to be careful who you hang around. People, people say you, you are who you hang around. You become who you hang around. You know, you show me a man's inner circle, the company he keeps, I'll tell you a whole lot about that person, right? And, and this quote that he says here, you may see it's in, in, in quotes where he says, evil company corrupts good habits. It's not, a, it's not a quote from somewhere else in Scripture. It's actually from an, an ancient Greek playwright. But it, it, was, it was correct. I mean, truth is truth. The, in, the biblical vernacular says it like this. The righteous should choose his friends carefully for the way of the wicked leads them astray. Here's the problem, guys. What we believe determines how we behave. Are you following me with that? What you believe will determine how you behave. And this is why Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 is so vital for us as believers. It says, and do not be conformed to this world, which was what was happening into the Christians in Corinth, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You and me, we should strive to obtain and maintain a biblical worldview through our intake and application of God's word. Are you with me? It's the word of God that should shape the way that we think, not the evil and or uh, secular influences of this world. Okay? Verse 34, and uh, whoever, whoever's closing, you can make your way up here. Verse 34, let's read it. He says, Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. When he says some do not have the knowledge of God, uh, there are a, a number of applications we can receive from that. Number one, you know, he's essentially saying if you know the truth, you recognize the lie. We, we wouldn't be drawn after these strange thoughts or twisted ways of reasoning affecting our behavior negatively if we weren't willfully ignorant of the truth. Okay? Guys, it's both shameful and 
I'm going to step out there and say sinful, okay, to be willfully ignorant of the truth. And Paul could be saying, you should be ashamed to be so easily drawn away, having no grounding knowledge of the truth of God. Guys, you have. If there's someone here today who doesn't own a Bible, come see me, right? We'll make sure you have one. But everyone, if you own a phone, you own a Bible. We all have a Bible. And so to be willfully ignorant of the truth of God, what makes you think that you're not then subject to being drawn away into these weird practices or thought processes or behavioral issues based upon what you now believe? He could also be saying, why are you letting these people who have no knowledge of God be influential in your lives? You should be ashamed of that. They're infecting and polluting your life. Or in saying, awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. He could simply be saying, hey, hey, stop sinning. Snap out of it and get busy getting the gospel out into your community, to your friends, to your family. You're over here slipping and sliding and stumbling in sin, and people all around you are leaving the planet without Jesus, without the knowledge of God. You should be ashamed of yourself for that, you see. Get out of the quagmire of your own sin and start telling people about Jesus. That's why you're here. To reach the law. So he's, he's, he's calling them back to their senses. And listen, I don't know. Perhaps today God would call you back to your senses. There's a reason you're still here on this planet. And let me just tell you that it's not to get lost in some kind of sin or strange thought that changes your direction. It's not to be all about self. It's to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the knowledge of God with a hurt and dying world around you. Awake, awake to righteousness. Regain and maintain that eternal perspective. Serve the Lord with all your heart. And God will be glorified in your life. Amen? Let's bow our hearts. God, may we have ears to hear you today. Awaken us, oh God. Snap us out of our slumber spiritually. Bring us back to our senses, God, that we might serve you effectively. That we might share the hope of Jesus Christ and him crucified boldly with those around us. That we might reach this generation, oh God, this community, however you want to use us, those in our, our circle, you know, personally at work or school or whatever the case may be.